Welcome to the Optimal Body Podcast. I'm Doc Jen. And I'm Dr. Dom. And we are doctors of physical therapy, bringing you the body tips and physical therapy pearls of wisdom to help you begin to understand your body, relieve your pains and restrictions, and answer your questions. Along with expert guests, our goal of the Optimal Body Podcast is really to help you discover what optimal means within your own body. Let's dive in. Obviously, this podcast is going to be all about the feet. So you know we're going to bring up Vivo Barefoot Shoes and we're not alone in talking about this either. Now, use code OPTIMAL for 15% off if you haven't tried Vivo Barefoot or if you're looking to get your next pair. One of the pairs that has recently come out is the Tracker Decon. Now, they have a lower profile shoe and they also have like a high top. So depending on the terrain and the type of hike that you're going on, these shoes are so great. They're going to protect you from really sharp objects and, and rocks, but you're also going to be able to feel the ground. You're still going to have that flexibility through that shoe because it's a barefoot profile. That is what is so great about Vivo Barefoot is that you have that traction for hiking and you have that protection of the foot, but you still have that ability to really sense and feel where your feet are on the ground. And that's what I absolutely love about using Vivo Barefoot, especially doing something like hiking or going about in my everyday life. And a lot of people ask me, what size do you get now? I'm just going to briefly touch on this. I'm traditionally a six and a half. And for any of like the knits, I usually go down half a size to a six. And for anything else, everything else, I go up to a size seven. Those just fit me perfectly because they don't have a traditional US size six and a half. So if that helps at all, stay around your normal size maybe go up half a size and you really don't have to go far beyond that. But again, remember, there's also a hundred day free trial. So get your shoes that you think are going to be best for your feet. Try them out right away. If you're seeing that this isn't working for me, send them back and get a different size. You want to try and get your feet in some more natural footwear and you'll find out why as we talk into this podcast. We've had a code change, so make sure you use code T-O-B so that you get 15% off. That is T-O-B, like the Optimal Body Podcast. One of the reasons I love Instagram is because I get to stumble across some incredible people who are really doing good work out in the world. And one of those people we get to interview today is Andy Bryant. Now, after 16 years as a clinical podiatrist in Melbourne, Australia, things really started to change in other areas of his life, and he was properly introduced to the barefoot movement, which obviously caught my eye. As you know, Dom and I are huge proponents of the barefoot culture. Now, this shook his world. And in the past seven years since then, he's transformed the way he practices. And now his goal is to empower his clients with education and tools to look after their own foot health as naturally as possible. He loves being an educator, both in person and with larger audiences. And I think you're really going to get the understanding of what he how he really empowers people and the things that he is teaching. So I'm really excited to dive in with another podiatrist to understand and learn the natural way of how we can address our foot pain. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time, especially all the way from Australia to be here on the podcast with us. We really just appreciate your time and are excited for this conversation. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I'm just at work, so it's just like going to work. It doesn't make any difference that you're on the other side of the world. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fantastic to have you here because Jen and I, I mean, being physical therapists, talk about our feet a lot and how it's so important for movement patterns, balance, a variety of different things having to do with our movement and overall health. And 
we're always excited to bring a podiatrist on, especially one with your background, because as I understand it, you started in more of a conventional podiatry clinical setting and have transitioned to more of a functional podiatry um, practice. Yeah, so um, at uni here, we study podiatry as an allied health, probably similar to um, physical therapist over there, rather than in, I think, the States, it's a podiatrist is a... Um, is a doctor as well and is more surgically based. So here we are um, more clinically based, um, looking after, you know, all the different foot types, foot issues. Um, but, yeah, with a real focus on supporting the foot and um, orthotic therapy and things like that. So, yeah, I did that for 15 years, um, you know, in a practice um, with a business partner and then sort of started to see some different ways in my own life where my feet were getting stronger and I thought I think this um, appeals to me more so I just um, did research and um, found a different way yeah wow so let's dive into that a little bit you know what are some of like the main kind of practices that you used back in your clinical early days that you would yeah. never kind of use or recommend now? Um, it's, I, I would never say never with any. any yeah, it's true. <laughs> I think in the past, uh, traditional podiatry, generally speaking, would be looking at trying to control or support uh, the way the foot moves. And I'm more about, I'm now more about moving towards how the foot can move naturally. And mm -hmm. so maybe we'd see someone come in with, um, uh, some pain and we look at how the foot's moving and think oh that's moving too much there let's stop that movement and now I'm kind of embracing that movement and trying to get stronger with it so it's um, more about yeah embracing the way the body moves naturally rather than trying to control it because I think when we control movement it's uh, it's not a long-term fix it's more likely to lead to other problems mm. yeah so that's where we'd use orthotics we'd use um strong footwear, you know, like um, footwear that has uh, support in, built into it. Uh, yes. So it was more of that type of work in the mm -hmm. past. So yeah. I want you to talk a little bit more about that, this concept of putting things around the foot or building up this underfoot technology that, you know, we've developed in our, our medical systems around the world, really. Um, and how you said, yeah, we might do that to limit motion here or provide more support here and why long term can that be detrimental in, in some cases to the overall functionality of the foot yeah we, we, and with an orthotic therapy i think we used to think it changed position but we know it doesn't change position if anything it does now it changes um, muscular activation and so this can be a positive thing but with any part of our body we shouldn't be trying to reduce motion we should be increasing motion and control through our own ability to do it rather than um, using outside sources and so there still is a place for an orthotic that can help um, in the short term but i don't think it should be a long-term um, solution so i don't know if that answers that question uh, we really um, in the past looking what well, in the past i was and there's still a lot of podiatrists doing this um and I don't think they're doing it with a, with a heart for doing the wrong thing. It's still a, a legitimate way to practice. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just what we're taught. And so it, when we see something moving too much and it's creating pain, then it's human nature to try and stop that. Mm -hmm. But it's just the next step to say, hey, what about um, embracing that movement and 
controlling it with your own body or working out why it's happening and addressing that rather than just putting something in place that's um, trying to control it from the outside. And that's with footwear, orthotics, things like that. So how does someone start to make the transition? Maybe they've been in in an orthotic for a while or that's all they've been told is the fix. So how does someone start to make that transition from getting out of the orthotics? Because you said it could be great for some temporary um, help in the foot, but then how do we start to transition someone off of an orthotic? It's, it's got to be a long, slow process, really. And it's not for everyone. Like Some people love their orthotics and are happy in that situation. Um, I think our, culturally, we're told the foot needs support. So it's a huge step to go from um, from understanding that the foot needs support to understanding that it actually doesn't need support. And that's mm-hmm. an overriding um theme of my practice and my ideals is that the foot doesn't need outside support. So to help someone get out of an orthotic, which is a lot of what I do, like I see people that have had four different pairs of orthotics over the last X amount of years and they've been in the, you know, um, they're almost uh, needing that orthotic, but they don't want to have to use it. So Primarily, I'll, I start with changing their footwear first because I think um, the modern shoe with its heel and stiffness and tapered toe um, is not letting the foot function as well as it, it can. And so often that leads to needing an orthotic. So when we change the shoe, then the need for the orthotic can be reduced. And so um, I often put an orthotic in a more minimal shoe or a shoe that has less of those uh, traditional qualities of a heel and stiffness and things like that, and then um, have someone wear the orthotic in the less um, stable shoe for a while and then start reducing the strength of the orthotic while they're getting stronger, while I'm giving them exercises for mobility and strength to um, help their body deal with going without the orthotic. So mm-hmm. it's this long, slow process. Look, that said, some people go cold turkey, which I don't recommend, but <laughs> um, but they also uh, do it and then are fine sometimes as well. So, you know, like as with the, anything with the human body, there's this huge spectrum. I have some clients that I'm, I've been weaning off their orthotics for two years and it's like every, every three or four months we just reduce a little bit more increase the amount of um, strength that's happening in the foot. And so we'll get there. There's just no rush, really. You know, some people have worn their orthotics for 40 years. So if we try and do it too quickly, you know, it's just going to cause problems. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the the misconception is that, you know, when somebody will see Jen and I or yourself talking about minimalist footwear and, hey, this can be so great for strength and mobility in your feet. And somebody goes out and buys a pair and wears them for their normal five mile walk and wakes up the next morning and can't hardly put pressure on their feet. Then they say, oh, darn those natural, you know, rehab specialists. They, they don't know anything. I need to go back and almost reinforces that mindset that, that they have had for, for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. And I really like how you say that, Hey, if we've been doing something for a decade to, to four decades, it's not going to happen overnight. And, and that's kind of the difficult non-sexy answer to explain to people through a medium like Instagram or a podcast is that if you really want to build up this, mobility and strength in your body, you're going to have to put just as much time and effort into it as you have with the previous footwear or methods you've been using. Um, you mentioned how conventional footwear might tend to have a heel lift. Uh, can you explain what it means to have a heel lift and, and what that can do in changing the, the structures around our foot ankle complex? And so, 
when we look at a shoe, and you could think of a high heel as a great example of this, that the heel is elevated above the forefoot, as in a, um, a women's high heel shoe. But even in your traditional, um, well, conventional, I should say, because traditional runners were really not what we see today as a running shoe, um, but our conventional shoe now has got up to two centimetres lift in the heel compared to the forefoot. Mm. And so this is putting our um, load more through the forefoot and it's changing the way we stand as well. When we stand flat on the ground, our, our head is above our ankles and then when we stand on a heel, our head is still above our ankles. For that to still happen, our uh, knees, our hips, our back has to change its position. And so when we use a heel, we see increased knee flexion, increased hip flexion, change in back mechanics as well. And our body's highly adaptable, so it just gets used to it usually. But I think uh, there's a way that we're designed to stand for a reason and it's not on a heel. Um, I think we get used to it because if you go to any kindergarten or you know play group, there's a whole bunch of three-year-olds running around in tiny heels. They're in their little Nikes and their little um, shoes that have already built-in heels. And so we get used to it and develop this way. And so this is why it's so hard for some people to go back into a flat shoe because they've grown with a heel on their foot. And so um, I'm, I'm, who knows how this affects our musculoskeletal system, but I know that for that we were designed in a way for a reason with our foot flat on the ground, not on a heel. So um, the heel came about, this is interesting, because in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, there was a big running boom, especially over there in the States, um, and a whole lot of sedentary people started running more, you know, like doing their fun runs and marathons. And in, before then, the, the shoe of the day, like the athletic shoe of the day was a very thin, flexible shoe, um, and, and running was a skill that was um, – that you know, athletes did. And then suddenly everybody started running and, and probably with less skill and started getting injured. So we saw people that were sitting in their office all day in and, and, and if they were walking, they're in a heel business shoe starting to run and getting injuries around their ankles. And so, you know, the big shoe companies were obviously worried about this. They're, they're looking into this new market and wanting to um, expand upon what shoes they could sell and so they started building in cushioning and a heel lift into shoes because it takes load away from the ankle and so instead of trying to uh, instead of trying to teach people how to run better in a way that was um, more natural and more efficient we made a shoe that accommodated their poor running now we which which is legitimate you know like that's a legitimate way to help someone not be injured but now we see that shoe on from three-year-olds all the way through to grandma going for a coffee with her friends. Everyone is wearing that shoe for everything, you know. So um, I don't think that's great for our foot health or our whole over overall musculoskeletal health. I mean, that's so true. You just see it, it's also part of the style. It's the aesthetic that you get these really cool running shoes and you literally wear them all the time. That's just what people start to live in. Well, how is that re really changing kind of the structure of our body if we're wearing it all day long? Does that put us a little bit like, does it put more pressures, I guess, at the knee, at the back? What does that kind of do on a day long basis? It changes the pressure at these areas. And uh, I, and this is the big question, like what? how does it have a long-term effect? We do see a whole lot of 50 and 60-year-olds having knee replacements. Is that because they're in a quad-dominant um, knee flex position now? Mm. Who knows? Like, because they're in that all the time. 
these are the questions we won't ever answer because there's not research to show it. And we can even use a heel. You know, if someone comes in um, with an ankle issue, then we might put a heel lift in or put them in a, in a shoe with a heel lift because that's going to take away load. But it shouldn't be a long-term solution. So um, that to answer your question, that's the million-dollar question. Yeah. How is this having an effect on us when we're using it every day, all day? All I know is we're designed to not be using it all day, every day, and therefore um, we have to question what these things we do to to add to our body. You know, like if we sit all day, it's not great either. There's nothing wrong with sitting. Just sitting all day is not really great. So mm-hmm. there's these things that we do in our modern society that I think are possibly detrimental to our musculoskeletal health, and we just take it for granted, and then we go and see physical therapists and osteos and podiatrists because we've got this huge industry based around fixing people. Maybe if we just went back to the way we're designed to move and function, we might not need so much fixing. Mm. No, I think that's great, and I love even that you bring up like sitting as a position itself isn't inherently bad, Like, nor is standing with your foot at a slight elevation that or your heel with you know a slight elevation under it that's not inherently bad it's when you do something for every hour of the day that we start to have concern i mean jen and my one of the things that we consistently say to people when they ask about posture or when they ask about work positions what's the best position and we always say the best position is the next position (laughs) it's it's the position that gets you out of your your chronic habit or the chronic behaviors that you may not be paying attention to and so I think that that's super important to pay attention when it comes to the feet, especially. Yeah. And I see a lot of runners and they might be in their minimal shoes day to day, but they're still running in their Nikes and their hocker and things like that. That's fine. Like maybe a serious runner is doing 15 hours of running a week. That's a very small amount of time, but that's, and they're using a shoe that's designed to help them run, you know, and, and they're getting better performance out of using that shoe as well, but they're not wearing it every day. That's my issue. That whole, that, um, that whole idea of wearing more time. And the minimal shoe movement, which is obviously what we're here to talk about um, to some extent, sort of had a big boom back in, in like maybe 12 years ago with those Vibram Five Fingers, the shoes that look like gloves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they, they sort of preach that they'll make your feet stronger and that you'll be injury proof. And um, people started, like you said before, going out for a run in them they were already running 50 miles a week in their normal shoes and then they went into their Vibram five fingers 50 miles a week and obviously pulled up sore and started getting injured and so this was a, a really um a bad like a bit of a setback for this kind of movement of barefoot um uh, ideals because it put a bad light on how people coped with going into minimal shoes i think this time around there's a, a far more um more gradual approach and far more people that understand what's going on like myself like you guys that are going to say don't do it all the time be careful you know make sure you're you're ticking the box with your mobility and your strength work as well if you're going to change this type of shoe yeah so so hugely important and i like too that you mentioned like it's okay to be in those traditional running shoes and especially because that's what they're made for. <laughs> you know, if you're going to go run, it's okay to wear those shoes. I guess my issue is some of the running shoes that I've had now that I wear more, you know, sh- shoes that you can spread your toes and you have that ability to have that toe spread. Sometimes still yeah. going back into those running shoes, my toes feel like a little squished. It's just not, it's not the same. And yeah. could that be having a detriment on your running performance if your toes aren't getting that same natural spread yeah so there's a bit of an um, argument going on on the social media at the moment because um like 
some, some people are really saying how important it is to be able to move your toes and have toe splay. And, and traditional, traditionally, there's a bit of kickback saying, well, look at all these athletic performance where people have their toes squished. Why do we need to change? If we're happy with our toes squished, why should, it, why should we have to change? And I just think, mm. really, like, are we still in that point where we go, okay, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Because you know what? It is broke. There's a huge industry all around foot pain and um, – an injury, and maybe it's because we're squishing our toes so much. It's like saying, it, let's, um, it's, it, I thought of this analogy last night. If gymnastics was done in a, in a, um, business suit, and then one day someone came along and said, Hey, let's do gymnastics in a, in a leotard or whatever, you know, um, something that you could actually move. People would be, Oh, no, we've always done it in a business suit. We should not be doing it in that leotard. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, you could, the human is going to perform better if they can actually move. The toes aren't just attached there to be stuck together. Our foot um, is designed to move. And when we squish our toes together, they can't move. And when they can't move, then they can't function. And that's going to have some detrimental effect. And the, and the idea that you touched on there, Jen, um, about once you go into minimalist shoes and then you try and go back to another shoe, like it just feels so weird because you've got used to wearing a shoe that actually lets your feet move. Yeah. And so I, I hear that all the time. Fortunately, there are some running shoes now that are wide, they're flat, but they still have some cushioning. The biggest thing that people struggle with is going without cushioning. I think it's because they've always had cushioning. Like if they never had cushioning, they wouldn't need it. But because they've always had it, that's what they feel like they need. And so there are some running shoes that fit the bill where they're wide, flat semi-flexible so your foot can move around and still have some cushioning so i think that's a, a happy medium for some people yeah i think that that's where i always run into problems i mean jen and i have been in minimalist type shoes for you know the better part of three plus years now and feet are really getting used to it and i yeah. tend to push the envelope a little bit i like to go on, <laughs> on trail runs with with our pup and i i historically and you know just anatomically have a, a very rigid high arched foot that hasn't yeah. always moved the greatest for me very tight ankles and whatnot and if i go on anything beyond three three miles i tend to start and feel that impulse when i'm when i'm using a more minimalist style shoe and so you know it's all about learning learning those limits or those barriers and especially like you, you mentioned about chronic runners who are going 15 hours a, a week you know you might need something unless you're somebody who has been doing this since you were that three-year-old and, and your body has adapted to, to do so. And I like the argument that you bring up too about the high-level athletes, how people like to point towards high-level athletes and say, well, look at them. They're doing it at the highest level. They're one of the best in the world. And they wear these tiny little cleats or running shoes or whatever it may be. And it's kind of like saying like, well, yeah, they also eat fast food three times a week, but is that really the best thing? <laughs> like is that really the thing that is helping them become an olympic champion or yes. could they cut that out and maybe get that that extra percentage or get that extra inch on their long jump or, or whatever it might be so again it's kind of a, an arbitrary argument that people like to uh, assign to things and so kind of continuing on this topic of toe movement and toe space yes. i feel like we'll talk about that so much and then there are the people who come in and say oh, my toes don't move. They've never been able to move. Like, I don't believe that I'm ever going to be able to move my pinky toe. Yeah, so um, 
it's it, well, that's one of the things that I get people to do in clinic. I just ask them to move their toes because it tells me how much their brain is connected to their feet, and often that connection is not great. Mm. And so um, they are. Um, so we, that's where we'll start, just getting them to move them before we can start strengthening. I, I use the analogy that if you couldn't move your arm, it would be very hard to strengthen your bicep. And yes, you could just do a big isometric hold. But um, and, and we also see when we put a cast around the arm, if you've broken your arm, that arm is now withered. Or in, in the opposite, we see a tennis player, he's, his or her um, dominant side is so much stronger and bigger than the than the other side. So our body is highly adaptable and, and requires movement. And so if our toes can't move, then the muscles that are attached to them um, are probably not doing much. And those muscles are super important for foot function and for whole body function. So, um, yeah, like if – and that's often the first step to get them moving. And there are ways to do that. We use external cues. Like if people say they can't do it, then I'll just um, get them to use their fingers to get them moving while they're sending this message from their brain. You know, it doesn't take long. In a couple of weeks' time, their toes are dancing around, and then we can start loading those movements. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's it's so interesting to move just through life and have a new concept. I think it's going to take time to really get people to wrap their minds around it. I mean, I remember going shoe shopping with my mom and always growing up, it would be, oh, does it have arch support? Feel it. Does it have arch support? Oh, if it doesn't, not a good shoe. And so it was like kind of ingrained in me as well that I had to have this arch support shoe or else it wasn't a good shoe. It wouldn't be something that I would get. And now we're saying, no, let's go the opposite direction. So, you know, it's, it's really hard to wrap your brain around just this brand new concept of, the, of things. Do you think, you know, this, this traditional way of how we've been kind of brought up in the last few decades, do you think that's contributed to a lot of, you know, p- potentially more bunions or um, plantar fasciitis, metatarsalgia, like do you think that is kind of increasing the rate at which we're seeing these things? I think so. And, you know, like this is pretty new for me as well. My kids are 15 and 13 years of age and I had them in orthotics that I made for them and stiff shoes. And my wife, I would say to my wife, when you go to buy the kids' shoes, make sure they only flex here and they're stiff here and they've got all these features that we were taught at uni. Like I was taught at uni like 25 years ago. They're still teaching that today. You know, that's still the main message for the um, for health professionals. Foot health professionals are still being told that a shoe should only flex across the metatarsal, mm. uh, metatarsal joints that should be stiff in the back. That should be rigid for torsion. And we have a foot full of joints that we're then bracing to some extent. And this is the cultural norm to just have shoes that are supportive. And you could go to, you know, 99.9% of shoe shops and they'll still be telling you that. There'll be all the health professionals still telling you want support. So we are at the forefront as in um, of this movement and trying to change things but it's going to be hugely slow because all of culture still thinks <laughs> that there's a stiffness the stiffness is in a shoe is important and our health practitioners are mostly supporting that idea so um it's going to be a long time to change this so t- to answer your question more specifically about whether it's causing these problems well who knows mm-hmm. but like if i look back say 70 years ago um maybe there was um here like business shoes were maybe a bit more um, relevant. Uh, like there would be a heeled traditional leather shoe before the runners came in. So, 
that could be um, – and it would be hard to know whether there was a lot of plantar fasciitis. If someone had a sore heel, then they'd probably just change the way they moved or change the way they behaved and their heel would settle down. Now we're more likely to just want to keep running or keep doing whatever we're doing. Um, I definitely – in habitually unshod um, communities, so people that have never worn shoes, we see far less bunions. We see f- we don't have plantar heel pain. Um, Metatarsal algebra, which means forefoot pain, um, is you know uh, maybe someone gets sort of sore foot and then they just adjust the way they move or don't go and do do what they were doing that caused that. You know, just a manage manage load. I think nowadays we. Um, live in this way that you know so out of tune with our body that it almost gets worse so bad that you have to go and see someone for it before you've even realized it's happening and so and we have this whole industry that we're a part of um, built around fixing people as opposed to people looking after themselves and understanding how they move themselves and so I think that's got a lot to do with this foot pain that these foot pain epidemics that we're seeing of those things heel pain Fourth pain, bunions, they're just like, it's just a normal thing. You know, now a normal foot shape is a, has got a bunion or, or got squished toes, you know. Um, I'm about to do a post on Instagram of mannequins, you know, mannequins that people dress up to sell shoes and clothes. Um, they've got bunions on their mannequins now, you know. Wow. <laughs> this is crazy. It's kind of normal. <laughs> well, how else could you fit the mannequin's foot in heels? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, come on, exactly. it only makes sense. Um <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up, and it, it it brought up a little rabbit hole for me. I, I put up a post um, the other the other week talking about the the commentary that people will say like, "Oh, it's it's just genetic," yeah. and I used bunions as an example because I've heard many people bring up, "Oh, bunions, that's just genetic. Nothing I can do about it." The studies show that using splints or using whatever or going into physiotherapy like it does nothing to slow the progression of the bunion or development of the bunion and you know although there may be studies that say that uh, an even further and deeper rabbit hole is that i think a lot of research that has been done in our western society is inherently biased and is built on a lot of other bias studies that have a, a vast amount of limitations in how they're done but what you just brought up about these different cultures that are typically unshod um, and show a significant lower amount uh, percentage-wise and a lower prevalence of these issues like bunions and plantar fasciitis and different developed and secondary foot deformities that we see in our you know, Western cultures that tend to be shot in these type of shoes. To me, that kind of shows that, hey, there is some sort of environmental impact. And that's a really difficult thing to study longitudinally to, to say, okay, we're going to take this group of three-year-olds that has parents with bunions and have them remain unshot and do exercise with them for their whole life. And we'll take this group of three-year-olds and pop them in shoes and see how they develop. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are genetic components to a bunion. There's a Absolutely. First, first, second metatarsal angle will be wider, more joint mobility. But you put that foot – if you never put that foot in a shoe, then we just get a beautifully splayed foot. Whereas when you put it in a shoe that has is tapered, then that's when the bunion. So the environment is what's um, triggering these um, genetic components. And so, yes, there is genetic components to a bunion, but our, the environment you are in through um, the, the way you develop or even later on in life, that's what I think triggers things like bunions 
a whole lot of um, musculoskeletal issues. And that, and that, um, I joke that the genetic component might be our choice in footwear. <laughs> you know, like um, you choose the same shoes as your mother or father. You know, so it's funny you say that because that's. I mean, this person. It it was part of my argument that there are genetic components that like determine certain anatomical morphologies and elasticities of our tissues and tendons and everything. But when this person, you know, reached out to me, you know, through a, a very kindly worded um, comment on my post, um, yeah. I said back to her that likely if people are growing up that have parents that have certain morphologies, they're likely making a lot of the same behavioral choices, like the yeah. footwear that they wear for their first yeah. 18 years of life. And so I, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I that's mean, interesting. Yeah, that. So if someone is growing up and seeing that their, you know, their parents have had bunions, it's it runs in the family. Would you then say, okay, to be proactive about this, you know, let's get you or maybe your kid into a different type of shoe to be able to better support their 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 growth. And what kind of shoe would that be? And how would you convince someone <laughs> that that is that is really what's going to be the thing that's going to help them in the long run. Yeah, so 100%. So uh, that's like what I do in clinic, what you've just described there. People <laughs> come to me with bunion issues um, and I'm helping them first and foremost themselves. And that might be because they've been putting off fighting for a bunion, which doesn't make any sense to me, like um, that whole, because you're just then loading that big toe joint even more, but in a shoe that doesn't let it work anyway. Anyway, so um, so I'll be helping them maybe get out of their fighting, get their foot stronger, create an environment for their foot that actually lets the toe be straight and be used properly, getting stronger on the inside of the toe, releasing on the outside of the toe, creating this um, foot that can actually use that big toe in a, in a way that's designed to be used. And, and then the penny drops, like, what about my kids? Because this is genetic for me, so what about my kids? So the, it's, it's so much easier with kids because you don't. the transition is so much easier because – you don't have to get them out of a healed shoe so much or they've only been in it for three years and they're still developing. Like my children were in orthotics and healed shoes with stiff and they were, I think, eight and ten when I changed them and no issues. Like they they, they just flipped over straight away like cold turkey mm. because at eight and ten their bodies are so adaptable and they haven't um, had those things happen yet. Um and, and you don't even always need to do the exercise. The environment is the key, like the environment that foot is is in is the key my wife is a great example has had foot pain her whole life and would still do like she's like three to four years into minimal shoes stage two bunion there's four stages of bunions and she would be like stage two four years ago and um i have encouraged her to do exercises wear toe spaces do all these types of things for her feet and She's done none of them ever over that four years, but she has changed the environment of her foot. She wears minimalist shoes over that four years, and her foot is far less painful. Her big toe is straighter, and um, and that's without any of the things that I tell people to do in the clinic every day. <laughs> because she, so, which is kind of typical of, of maybe that relationship. But anyway, yeah. um, it just shows you how important the environment is to the foot, and we see it every day when people change their environment of their foot. Um, in terms of footwear and the way they move, then we we start seeing some changes. And it's really, I guess, clinically, I see the problem ones, the ones that aren't um, doing it easily. So I have to help them with, you know, exercises and mobility work. But there is a whole raft of people out there that are changing their footwear 
without any help. And they're just um, maybe doing it gradually because they're sensible about it or maybe they've gone cold turkey and they're doing fine, you know. So um, our body innately likes to go back to what it's designed to do. And that is the same with nutrition and movement and definitely with footwear. Yeah, definitely. I mean, similar story. My my mom, who's up in her upper 60s, you know, somehow I, I didn't even say anything. She was following my post and somehow started to get into, well, I gave her a pair of barefoot shoes. So that helped. Um, and then she started to do some toe and ankle exercises. And she was like, crazy. My bunion pain has significantly reduced and I don't have, like, I'm not dealing with that that swelling and that pain anymore. Which I think is ultimately the goal for many people, especially once you have whatever stage of bunion it is, one through four, Mm -hmm. like the symptoms is what makes things debilitating. And people, people think that, oh, the morphology bothers me. But in reality, if you get those symptoms to go away, it it can make a drastic change in your quality of life. And what you just said and what Jen just said goes against this conventional research that we're seeing that says you can't really change the morphology of a bunion once it's progressed to a certain degree, which again, I don't know if I exactly agree with in all cases, depending on on what we do with our footwear. And so, you know, I'm glad that we have these anecdotal examples. <laughs> Nearly all these studies that we're talking about um, don't ever put anyone in a shoe that's actually straight at the big toe or, yeah. you know, and whether that be for heel pain, which is incredibly... Um, better off with a straight big toe for bunions, for metatarsalgia, all those, the common foot complaints are improved when you actually use your big toe the way it's designed to be used. And there isn't a study that goes, okay, let's look at heel pain and how straight your big toe is, or let's look at bunions and, and putting them in a straight big, uh, in a, in a wide toe box, you know, like it's, <laughs> which is, yeah. like, like we said before, um, there's this culture, like, the, the research is biased because they don't even question the footwear. The footwear is a given. And really, we should be questioning why we're putting heels, cushioning, and tapered toe boxes on feet. The base um, line should be barefoot. Let's compare everything to that because that's the way we're designed to move and function. Mm, love that. And I, I, yeah, I think you're hitting at one of my biggest pet peeves, which is we live in a conclusion-driven research environment where people come to me with all these one sentence takeaways from big studies. And my first question to them is like, well, what did they do in the methods? What were they comparing it to? What was the rehab protocol or what, you know, what was the control? And and nobody knows those things, especially when it comes to these big studies that end up on headlines. We only know the one line. And I think that's a really big problem because it starts to put these one line truths in people's heads when they're, the story's much, much, much deeper than that and uh, takes a lot longer to explain, but I'm glad we're kind of tearing some of that down a bit. Yeah, and, it's, and this is not for everyone, you know, like, um, there, it's not a, a, a magic cure and it's not like, oh, everyone should just be in normal shoes and going barefoot. And this is why I think um, what I call natural podiatry is the way I practice is this continuum. Like someone might be in their Asics Kayano, which is a really beefy, strong, controlling shoe with an orthotic and natural podiatry, the ideal will be to maybe reduce um, that control in the shoe and reduce the orthotic so their foot's going to be functioning um, more naturally, moving more, and that can be enough for that person, you know? So, and it could be in five years' time they might end up a bit further down the track. It's all about just trying to get more natural function back. It doesn't mean going all the way straight away. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. important. And, 
And but with that transition, if there's someone who's just like adamant, I know I have bunions, I'll do the toe splay, I'll wear the stuff, but I will not change my shoes. It doesn't feel good. My feet feel better in, you know, my brooks or my hookahs or whatever it is. How is there any convincing of a person? Do you do you try to continue to move them down a route or do you just say, okay, stay in the shoes that feel comfortable and continue the foot exercises? Or is there is there something that we say like, okay, this is a reason why, you know, I would really encourage you to start to work toward a more barefoot lifestyle? I think clinically I'm preaching to the converted. Like I have people come to me that want this, so that makes it easier yeah. um, for me, obviously. But I still am just a podiatrist on the corner for some people that live around the corner, you know. So mm-hmm. I, um, before I see those people, like I, I'll talk to them and say, this is how the approach I'm going to have, and if this is not going to fit with you, then maybe I'm not the podiatrist for you. Do you know what I mean? So um, there's that from the start. But most people go, oh, no, this is really interesting. I really like that idea. And then when we're going down the path of rehab exercises and cha- and, and, um, and changing footwear, if they're adamant that they're not going to change footwear, then I'll be saying it's like um, you're you're constantly needing to do rehab because you keep putting your foot in this environment. It's like an alcoholic might just keep drinking and going to rehab and, and keep drinking and then going to rehab. They're not going to get better if they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So, And the exercises for foot rehab are generally quite boring, fiddly, and um, annoying. Yeah. And so... If I've not met anyone that has done them for years and years and kept wearing a, a rubbish shoe. For you to be motivated enough to do these types of exercises, then you're going to be motivated, motivated enough to change your shoes. It's very rare that people won't change your shoes. And then I also talk about the sometimes shoes. Like some people will be barefoot at home all the time and the last two and a half years with lockdown has been a real blessing to this movement because so many people went barefoot at home and loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, – some people will be barefoot at home, but they still wear their shoes when they go out. Or they'll still go out on a Saturday night in their high heels and understand that that's not great for their foot function, but it's such a short period of time that it doesn't really matter in the long term. Um, my mum turned 70, and my wife at the time was 40, and my daughter was like 12 or 13, and they're all habitual barefoot shoe wearers. And after... Um, Like after a night out for dinner for my mum's 70th, they were all wearing heeled shoes and my daughter didn't have any pain. My wife had pain for a week and my mum had pain for a month. Wow. (laughs) This is how how age is, um, you know, varying that. And so I would never say never to a shoe, um, but I just tell people they're sometimes shoes and, you know, and if they want to keep doing their rehab and still wearing that shoe, that's up to them. You know, we can't try and convince people. I just educate and explain and they do with that information what they will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your story there beautifully depicts the the wonderful plasticity of young musculoskeletal systems yeah. and nervous systems <laughs> compared to compared to those that have a little more age behind them but um yeah that's that's neither here nor there i think what i really like about your answer too is that you know you're kind of empowering people to stay in the footwear that they have to some degree as they slowly transition especially like those runners or people who really like to wear heels like in reality that can be such a short amount of time but there are all these options like getting barefoot at home and you know doing the exercises where you can edge into you know a more natural or barefoot lifestyle but continue to wear the footwear that 
that you either feel good in or feels good to run or work out in uh, for certain things. One last little component I want to talk about when it comes to feet is, so we've been talking a lot about the movement-based stuff, but feet help us with so much more than that, especially when you mentioned earlier, we talk about the brain-foot connection and how it helps us with balance and, and all of those different components. So can you talk a little bit about how having a better connection foot straight to ground, whether we're unshod or in a minimalist footwear, how that can help us with balance and why? Yeah, I think it's a great place to start. Jen, you're about to have a baby, is that right? Yeah, so I think Dom yeah. has pregnancy brain too. <laughs> yeah, that's what, we'll, that's what we'll go with. Um, so, you know, when your little one starts walking, uh, the, the shoe um, that will be advised for them will be a wide, thin, flat, flexible shoe. And the, the ideal behind that for a new walker is because it's increasing their chances of getting some foot strength going on, some proprioception to their brain. So this is the feeling through the sole of the foot of the shoe and through the foot to tell where they are in space for their um, nervous system to develop to help their balance. And so, so that's what new walkers are. Um, that's the, the common and re recognized advice for footwear for a new walker, barefoot or a shoe that just purely protects them from sharp things, hot and cold. When they turn two or three, they go off to playgroup or whatever and they're in their little Nikes with cushioning as though they've already done all their developing, you know, as though they don't need to keep developing that balance, strength, coordination, all those things that happen when we're actually exposing our feet to texture and movement and, and feeling um, through the soul. And so I see 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds that start – going barefoot more often that are improving their balance, improving their, their mm -hmm. mobility and ability to move well because their feet are getting involved in the act. And so we have all these um, all, all these nerve receptors on the sole of our foot that are, that are feeding back to our brain as to where we are in space, whether there's danger around, whether the ground's hot, cold, sharp, all different things. Our joint, there, there are 26 joints in the foot. Our joints have nerve receptors as well. They're telling us when they move where we are in space. If you put something stiff and cushioned on top of uh, underneath those joints, then they stop moving. So we stop getting those, um, those messages to our brain. We might more likely to have a, a lateral ankle sprain if we're not getting those messages because our body doesn't even know to move and adjust to what the ground is telling it is that's going on so it never stops our foot is always going to be able to develop and be better mm. at any age if we just give it the right um cues and the right texture and the right um environment to actually work it's designed to be a big sensor of where we are in space does that answer the question absolutely yeah, and I think that's so incredibly important to continue to point out too. I think there's so much fear as far as, you know, when I've posted about things about going barefoot, there's just a lot of fear because I've had plantar fasciitis in the past or I've been told that I need these big cushion shoes or whatever. And, and you saying that at any age, you know, we can start to work into a more natural lifestyle where we're using our feet and building that strength and it's only going to help. It's only going to help to improve that balance and that proprioception and that awareness, which balance is huge as we age. It's something that's highly needed and we deal with as physical therapists as the number one injury is falls. So, yeah. you know, being able to help prevent that and knowing that it is possible and it's never too late, I think is is so incredibly key. Yeah, we put um, someone in a, on a BOSU ball, you know, like a, a wobble board or, mm -hmm. or a 
on the ball side or a, a foam cushion and get them to practice their balance. I'm like, well, that's good for you because you're going to be practicing your balance when you're wearing your sketches, which are the same. <laughs> How about we just want something firm and hard and you get uh, able to actually feel the ground and brace the ground with your foot because that's what your foot is doing with every step when it's des- that's how it's designed to move. So I'm often pe- getting people to practice their balance, but let's give them a realistic um, chance of using the foot as it's designed to, which is bracing against the ground so that the rest of the body can react accordingly as mm. opposed to doing the wobble where the brain is just actually going, I have no idea where I am in space, so I'm having to do all these compensations because of this big wobble going on. So um, yeah, falls is a huge one. Like most of the pop- the elderly population down here are wearing sketches, which are just like a big cushion, probably because they've always worn cushion shoes and they've lost some of the fatty pads on the sole of their foot and they just want something soft. But, um, you know, if, even that can change. When you start exposing your foot to some texture, you start getting some of that fatty pad back and some cushioning and, and some um, natural cushioning and some muscular strength through the foot that gives you your foot the ability to cope with um, some texture compared mm-hmm. to being so so cushioned its whole life. And so when people can't feel the ground, they're far more likely to fall. When their big toes push sideways, they're losing their ability to stabilise and they're more likely to trip over. So, yeah, definitely falls are the big one. And there's so much research on falls and I think there's one study that looks at minimalist shoes and falls. <laughs> um, so it just blows me away. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I love how you bring up when – you're having people practice on on a cushion or something, and then saying, "Well, it's good to practice with this because as soon as you put those shoes back on, it's it's a pretty pretty similar environment." <laughs> I, and that's that's an exercise that I challenge a lot of people to try and like, okay, put on your conventional shoe and just try standing on one foot, or depending on what level you are and how good your balance is, stand on one foot with your eyes closed, and then just try taking that shoe off and do it with your bare foot on the ground and. And just see how it feels, see the difference, or even try some basic movement patterns like lunges or, you know, side lunges or something like that and see how the diff- how it feels different, you yeah. know, in your conventional shoe versus your, your barefoot shoe. Yeah. We often see some of bouncing without shoes on. Their big toes flashing up and down, like just a can of ground. Mm. And you think, oh, no, that's happening. Well, it's been pushed sideways and out of the equation for most of its walking life, you know, with conventional shoes so we put a toe spacer on and get them to really focus on grounding down through that big toe and you just see this chain of events right up the body um, that creates more stability for the whole body not just the foot Mm. so so huge and i love all the information i mean there's so much we could if we didn't even touch on gait on running mechanics there's so much more that you share as well on your page andy brandt underscore podiatrist so everyone can go follow you are there other places that you have information or ways that people can either work with you or or just see more of learn from you yeah so i think um, you know i get asked a lot about online consults and i do them and i guess the last two and a half years has really opened that window for me to be able to do that around the world but still seeing someone in person is is best so there's something called the healthy feet alliance this is a whole group of um, practitioners like me and some shoe companies as well um, so that's on, on Instagram, it's at Healthy Feet Alliance, and they've got an approved practitioners list. And so you, you can often find someone closer, you know. But um, so anyone that asks me for an online consult, I'll say, go and look at this list first. And mm. if there's no one nearby, then we can start talking about an online consult. Um, mostly it's on Instagram at this stage. I'm really bad on the whole technology thing. <laughs> um, but my wife is going to probably start working with me next, with me next year, and she's going to like upgrade my website and, and get all my information on there as well. But um, yeah, like it's, it's out there. 
Healthy Phenolites is a good one. There's Gate Happens. That's a um, Court Connolly um, and Jen Perez are mm-hmm. uh, chiropractors in Denver, Colorado. They are like, men- I would see them as mentors of mine to some extent or really pushing the envelope in this um, field. And so they, and they've got um, online consults as well and approved practitioner lists as well. So they are uh, out there. I think if people are, are wanting to get into this, they need to go, they need to almost screen their health practitioner and say, mm. yeah, what are you going to do to help me with my knee? Mm. Is it going to be me coming back? Like it's okay to be honest and ask these questions, I think. Is it going to be me coming back and getting some soft tissue treatment every week for the next three months? Or are you going to do that to help me move better so that I can do some exercises that you're going to prescribe that are going to be, be progressively loaded so that I can um, look after myself? Like you said before, I'm all about empowering people to look after their, themselves. And I think that the... the Clients need to get smarter about asking what their provider is going to um, – like I would love if someone said, what are you going to do for me? I would say, well, this is what – I can spell out what I'm going to do for someone. I'm going to empower you to look after yourself rather than rely upon me. I want to be a resource here for you, but I want you to be empowered to look after yourself. Like get in tune with your body so that when something flares up in six months' time, you don't come racing back to me. You go, okay, what do I do in this situation? Let me think about what's going on. And, you know, you have a go at it. And then if it doesn't work, then I'm there as a resource, you know. So I think people out there need to just ask their clinician if that this is going to be an option for them. And if they get blanket answers like, no, you can't strengthen the foot, no, minimal shoes are bad, you shouldn't be in them, then they're big red flags because there are a lot of podiatrists and health practitioners out there saying this stuff and it's like it's so maybe 99.9% of people would, will benefit from going into less shoe. Mm. So, mm. you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not an answer to, um, to be saying, no, this is not going to happen. Mm. That's an incredible spot to kind of wrap things up is empowering the person to, to ask their provider, what are you going to do for me? How are you going to help me become independent in this journey? Because if the pandemic and two years of kind of being shut away and not being able to see people in person proved anything to us, it's that people don't have the ability to do that daily maintenance on themselves, especially when things flare up. We feel helpless. We feel so dependent. So really, really appreciate that last tidbit, Andy. Thanks so much for coming on and spending some time with us talking about uh, barefoot life and getting into more natural footwear and all that can do to help improve our movement and our health. Thanks for having me. Just another incredible chat with a foot expert on the benefits of going natural and using a more barefoot lifestyle. If you enjoyed this podcast or have someone in your life that you think might benefit from this, send it their way, please. Remember, we have that special code for Vivo Barefoot Shoes to get 15% off if you've ever considered starting to work in that direction and implementing some of the things that we talked about in this podcast episode. Go down to the link in the show notes. Make sure you use code OPTIMAL when you check out to get 15% off your Vivo Barefoot Shoes. And of course, we will see you next time on the Optimal Body Podcast.